Hello, hello, friends and fairies. Welcome to Tea Cakes and Tarot Conversations with Queer Futurists. I am your host, Will Wilhelm, and I come to you from the future, where we are very excited to be revisiting conversations that we first had at a moment where we were still sheltering in place and also on the precipice of returning to re-entering the world, reopening the theater industry. We had a lot of ideas and a lot of deep reflection. It feels like a great opportunity to check back in, and I am looking forward to returning to those conversations with a bit of distance, with a bit of clarity, question mark, and an opportunity to assess how we're doing. Have we actualized anything that we set an intention to do? Do we remember anything that we learned? Or did we immediately drop everything and run around like frantic little chickens with our head cut off? in pursuit of, who knows, money, community, the attention that we've been missing. Stick around and let's find out together. I'm very excited in particular for this interview. My guest today is P. Carl, who is the creator of an incredible online resource called HowlRound Theater Commons. It is a website that hosts an innumerable amount of articles and videos and podcasts and forums. HowlRound has contributors from all over the American theater industry, from emerging artists to establish and everything in between. It is a beautiful space to learn and explore new ideas. P. Carl is also a theater maker in his own right and the author of a memoir called Becoming a Man, The Story of a Transition. And the reason I'm excited about this interview in particular is because during the course of it, I arrived at a question that is so off-brand for me, Will Wilhelm, that I could never have imagined asking it until the moment that it came. This conversation was originally recorded on March 11th, 2021. Hey, hey. Hello, hello. (laughs) How are you? Thanks Uh, for joining us tonight. I'm doing well. You look fabulous. Thank you. You too. I love the heart like embroidered on your (laughs) on your shirt. We need a little heart right now. So (laughs) always, always. Um, I just finished. I've been reading your memoir, but I finished it yesterday. And so I'm really excited to talk about that. But before we dive into that, um, I would love if you could tell, um, you know, for those of us who know and those of us who don't know, a little bit about like your inspiration and the impetus to create HowlRound um, and what went into in behind that. So in, uh, in 2009, maybe, yeah, it was about 2009, 2010, I was in um, Chicago. I was working at Steppenwolf Theater, uh, company um and uh i had been uh the artistic director at the playwright center in minneapolis uh and i was really struck by the lack of any online uh, any dialogue period in the theater there was like a conference once a year but no no one actually talked and at the time oddly uh nothing was online. So when I went to research like theater journals, like, you know, what, what am I missing? I mean, maybe Playbill was online or, you know, the, some of those things, but there was no uh, American theater at that time was not online. 
And then I tried to order some journals and I couldn't even get through like the paywalls, like to be in any, like I was like, who's, what are people talking about? And the real impetus, I think for me was uh, just the feeling that the theater was so exclusive, uh, exclusively white, uh, run by almost all white male artistic directors at that time. Uh, You know, it's it's not that long ago, but it's that long ago. Um, And that, um, you know, as this uh, little queer person, I felt like the stories uh, we were telling uh, needed to be much broader and uh, much more representative. And so... I thought of uh, just starting a journal and I had a conversation uh, at that time uh, there was the American Voices New Play Institute and they had some grant money. And so I got a little bit of money and uh, at Steppenwolf, anybody who's worked there, you work sort of 24 seven. So on the, my, you know, like about midnight, 1am on my dining room table in uh, Chicago, I started to lay out um, an idea um, and uh, for it and uh, uh, brought in um, some advisors to help me with content and started doing a lot of research on the notion of a commons and uh, a place where everyone is invited and it's free to everyone. And I I felt like art belongs to all of us and theater belongs to everyone. And so the kind of tagline became uh, theater belongs to everyone. And the fun story of the name, I think it's a fun story, um, is that... uh, uh, my uh, wife, who is a you know, has done advertising copy. She's also a great writer, uh, but uh, as a day job, did advertise so advertising copy. So she uh, handed me like I don't know, maybe like a hundred options for names for the journal, and uh, the the only one that I was like, it's got to be Howl Around because it's um, you know, it's the screaming feedback of a microphone. And I was like, this is what I'm doing. I'm screaming at the theater to do better. Uh, and so, um, and everyone was like, you can't use that name that nobody can even say it, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, it's still around. So, uh, um, so it, you know, uh, we, we got a bunch of content. I mean, I basically sourced content enough for, you know, uh, a few months and, uh, and then opened it up and it really just like, I mean, the website went up and it was just like, uh, it just went gangbusters kind of from the get-go. Um, and then um, from there, did a lot of fundraising. And then eventually uh, we kind of merged what some of the work at the American New Play Institute with HowlRound. So like live, they were doing um, live streaming. Uh, so I went there and we kind of merged and moved everything to Emerson College. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the theater, HowlRound Theater Commons is uh, a kind of merging of HowlRound, the journal, and then those other great aspects of uh, what HowlRound does. That's amazing. I mean, they say it and it's true. Like if you open the doors, they will come. Is that how the saying goes? Yeah, um, yes, yes, yes. Or if you build, if you build it, they will come. Yeah, they like, will come. That's and right. Yeah. Y- there is like, you mentioned content. Like there's just, I feel like there's just so much content because there are so many artists and makers at every level in every role. Um, like the theater takes so many freaking people to make happen. And I've read like such incredible content and so from really specific viewpoints that don't necessarily have the time and space to have a whole production built around this viewpoint. Yep, um, yep. So I, I love, I love that you did that. And, and I'm realizing now, like this project that we were doing, that we're doing right now, I wrote an article for HowlRound last February and my co-creator Aaron approached, approached me about creating more 
Um, basically this project is directly from me writing that article, which is yeah. directly from you making that website. So thanks Pete Carl. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny when people start writing about something, they do, it, it is an amazing the number of things that have been inspired from people, you know, like, oh, I'm going to write it down and then, you know, you've published it and it's like, I got to own it now. So cool you're right yeah i like i i didn't even realize that until until us having this conversation that i was like yeah let me just try to explain more fully what i'm trying to say in miniature ways and then i was like oh i could totally make entire projects based off that theory um so i want to talk about um your uh big project i got the prop like <laughs> becoming a man thank you which i just finished reading yes of course sell you gotta sell the book <laughs> yeah, yeah. um <laughs> There, there's like so much that I could go into on every page and on every chapter, um, but I, I've, I'm going to pick and choose. I really do. I think of trans people um, as superheroes, and I think you talk about in the book about so much that you've gained through your transition, and you talk. I hope it's okay to mention it's in the book. Like you talk very much about like living, d- d- transitioning after having been alive for five decades, um, and all of the things that you've gained at that point in your life that come directly from the life that you've had from growing up in the Midwest. I grew up in Michigan, um, so like I <laughs> yeah. very much get that. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> But you talk about so much that you gain through your transition. Um, you like you mentioned WB Du Bois um, double consciousness mm-hmm. and the idea that like going through a transition gives you a dual awareness that people don't nor- really have normally. And you say like that taught you empathy in a way that you've in a way that maybe you understand deeper now than you ever have. And I love to hear more about like what the last several years have taught you in empathy and what being a trans person um, gives you access to that maybe cis people don't. Yeah. It's a, it's a great question. And uh, I, I, um, you know, uh, I think one of the things, I think we all live and I kind of call it, you know, uh, uh, we live these parallel lives with, you know, a kind of double consciousness. And I, I, the example I often give is uh, just, you know, the, some of the things that have gone on in the last four years. I mean, we've like how we got up in the morning and then went to work knowing that there were children in cages at the border. You have to like, you know, you have to compartmentalize. You have to sort of be leading parallel lives to survive, you know, day to day. And I think... I think I think um, a trans person has a very uh, particular experience of, of of a double life, um, and in my case, a, a really particular because it was so long in in one uh, in, in is perceived in one way um, and then uh, perceived in another, uh, and so um, y- you know I that that sort of outsider status, always feeling uh, uh, like you're looking in. Uh, I never felt. Uh, embodied uh, ever, you know, and even um, interestingly, like, uh, I didn't, I couldn't take in good or bad, like, like, my body didn't take in the excitement of being alive in some ways. Um, And so I think the, um, you know, the empathy comes from the recognition of the absolute inability to inhabit another person's experience. Like, you just can't do it, right? And you can you can spend your life trying and you can get close and, you know, and, but, um, and so I really, I think there was something about, you know, going through a transition 
being treated really terribly by uh, people that um, you know I was close to, uh, losing a lot of friends uh, in, in in the transition, uh, and uh, um, and then and then just really knowing how little we know about what people feel and go through. And so for what, to whatever degree I was a judgmental person, uh, that really left my body. I just, I see people, um, in, um, you know, in, we're all just trying to make it. And I try to see people, um, from that lens and, uh, um, and the people that tried to see my, experience through that lens uh um you know uh, thank god for them you know because I, i'm still here because they um embraced me in a really difficult time so uh, yeah yeah that's amazing thank you um one of the other like things that i think of as a superpower that i feel like you um talk about in the book the book is interweaved with with passages from other like you know um with other other literature um often iconic literature that has impacted you um and obviously i think it's 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 it doesn't take a genius to figure out that um trans people have a heightened Mm self-awareness because they've had to construct an identity in that way and you call out the angels in america passage of the mormon like diorama figure saying that she has to like pull out her own innards and examine them before stuffing them back in your body. And in Angels in America, that's such a grotesque image to have in your head. But I'm like, oh my God, yeah, I totally have done that. And somehow it's the most freeing thing to like literally rip yourself open and just take like a horrifying look at like the blood and guts that you consist of and be like, how can I put this back together for me? So I wonder if this, I wonder if there's like, is there a part of that that's actually like really beautiful and really freeing in its grotesqueness? I mean, yeah, I I love that. I just love that passage so much. I think Mm -hmm. uh, Angels in America uh, is a a touchstone for me because I think uh, the idea of bodies is just that's what that book's about and being trans is so much about a body and the obsession of the body right um uh, with the body uh and uh other people's and your own especially when you're tra- as i say and uh, when you're transitioning it's nothing if not a narcissistic moment in time of like oh my god you know but i think the um process of uh transitioning is like it is like ripping your like it's like you make a decision at least i made a decision to risk everything. And I, I say in the book, you know, I had this great uh, healthcare provider who was like, you know, specialized in trans queer health. And, and she was like, just be prepared to lose everything. And I was like, what? I'm going to gain everything. I'm going to be myself. You know, what do you mean by that? And honestly, uh, she was spot on. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I lost, you know, uh, my relationship survived as you'll read in the book. Uh, it was close, uh, but spoiler um, alert. yeah, spoiler <laughs> alert. Uh, but um, and uh, um, and so uh, I made a choice to kind of rip myself open and risk everything to feel embodied, and it was ugly. Uh, it was, uh, I, I, you know, I I think the book co- conveys how flawed I am, <laughs> how flawed and imperfect I was uh, transitioning, uh, but. Um, the process of becoming embodied is the most amazing experience. I just, to be at at my age, to have been 50 and to have never felt at ease and then to finally feel like I'm walking through the world and people see what I feel 
and that it just it was worth all of the it was worth all of the ripping out and the stuffing back in so yeah i'm i'm very happy to hear that um and i related um I related a lot to that. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I will say the one part that I was like, I'm actually really glad that someone else is saying this because it's putting words a feeling that I haven't had is you talk about like adolescence and, and youngness and, and you keep going back to embodied and just feeling like a general sense of disconnect. Like not anything specifically is wrong. I just like, I can't really feel dropped into any moment. And I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. yes, looking back, like, I feel like you explained a part of my past self to my present self. Um, And so thank you for that. (laughs) Yes, you're welcome. It's it's like, it's like, I I tell, it's like being an anthropologist, being trans, you know, because you're just watching all the time of like, is Mm -hmm. that, can I go, could I do that? Can I fit there? And uh, Mm -hmm. so you learn a lot, I think, about uh, other people in that, uh, in that experience. So, yeah. Um, I'm interested to get into so much of the book you talk about. I mean, there's, there's so much that's fascinating to me, just the like sociological experiment of a person who's lived your life that, uh, you know, halfway through it is now walking through the world as what could be perceived as a straight white man, um, you know, (laughs) very easily. What Um, is perceived as a straight white man often. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, and so... I am really curious. You talk a lot about like toxic masculinity, especially white toxic masculinity, and also that being really the only touchstone for for what we give our our, our world of like mm. this is what it is to be a man or to be masculine, especially being you know storytellers. We're we're kind of no better. Like you know, yeah. we we talk so much yeah. about Shakespeare on this podcast, and it's full of toxic masculinity. Yeah, and. So I'm curious, like, how you, as an artist, as a creator, but also just, you know, as a person as, and as a man, how you treat your masculinity with care in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, as a queer person, I'm, I'm and, and as a femme person, I'm very quick to, as many people in your life, be like, ugh, bye masculinity, like, <laughs> fuck you, I want to stay yes. far away from you. But that's yes. not fair. Um, and so yeah. I'm... How do you approach that? Uh, I mean, it's such a great question. And, you know, I talk about in the book uh, transitioning uh, during, you know, uh, hashtag me too. I mean, it was yeah. really ill-timed transition. Like, you know, white white man, here I come. Uh, and so um, uh, I think a, a couple of things. Uh, one is um, that uh, uh, I feel like the only way, I mean, w- white masculinity has earned this but the the you know when you just say white masculinity I teach a course in white masculinity and when I ask my students what they think about it's all toxic and certainly the last 4 years of the that administration we will not name I mean if it was you know it was like, did did not uh, uh, did, did only only made that worse and uh and I talk about in the book this very weird experience of like realizing that people are seeing me as a man and being in a park and a woman being alone and I can feel that she's afraid, you know, and I'm like, oh, oh, oh my, oh my God, you know, th- this is what my body uh, carries. Um, and so the book is a lot about uh, like, what, what would it be? What is it to be a good man? Uh, can, um, a, a, you know, can white masculinity be conscious of itself because i think that's uh you know what i what i find even as a person who sits in a lot of conversations around um 
issues of equity and justice and diversity, the uh, the inability often because white masculinity is an origin story for white cis men to feel um, uh, conscious of themselves. Like they, you can't know what you've not experienced. So if you've never felt Im- impeded by your body in a certain way, it's very hard to uh, grasp that. And so part of my work is, I think, you know, trying to bring that to light. Uh, I spent a lot of time, um, uh, you know, uh, thinking about what it means uh, to um, to teach about the subject and to really find nuance in our understanding of identity as, you know, uh, as, 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 as embodied in all kinds of different human beings. And, 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 and again, that's, it's not giving white men a pass at any level. It's just saying white men now have to own that they're a subject position and decide what that means. And the rest of us, uh, when I'm not in, when I'm the trans man and not just the cis white man appearing, the rest of us have all been having to do that. We've all been subject positions. You know, when the book was coming out, uh, you know, the publishers were like, well, so we'll reach out to all the queer bookstores. And I was like, why do it have to be all queer bookstores? I mean, you know, like we've all been in our box and uh, white men are now feeling uh, their box and they have to own that box, you know, so. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear all of your like anecdotal, but also, you know, now day to day experience of being able to like, I feel like infiltrate these spaces <laughs> of like, of like the dudes at the bar and the dudes in the locker room and the dude lift driver with the dude passenger. Mm-hmm. And is there like, it's really fascinating to me because every single one of those people is assuming that you would have just as little consciousness as they would have, right? Um, that you've been living from that experience the whole time. And is there anything you can do or is there anything that you do do to like, to basically cue them or ask them to be aware of themselves? But I also am aware that like you are very n- relatively new to that, to those spaces. So how can you go in and like change the rules? I just, it's such a fascinating experiment to me. Yeah, it's really a good question. And, it, and it's one I think about a lot, right? Like you have to decide, I mean, are you, um, you know, going to seek justice at every comment, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as you're sitting in the bar and, and I talk about in the book, uh, uh, it's it, you know I, I have a, I have sort of a double life. I mean I'm this the super queer professor at this uh, arts college, and uh, all of my classes are filled with uh, all queer students, and I love being a queer trans guy, and um, I love that part of my life. And then I have this kind of dude part of my life um, that I also sort of like, and uh, uh, you know I like to hang out in bars and just kind of chat it up, and I like hanging out. Uh, but I don't know whatever guy talk is, I kind of like it, not the toxic parts but other parts of it. And so, you know, in those moments, I think one is, I mean, learning, you know, obviously not to participate in in, and perpetuate conversations. But a lot of times I find, I think, uh, again, I'm doing a lot of listening and observing and I feel like my work is uh, to write what I see. Uh, And so it's a little bit like I call myself a spy and I'm spying. um, And, you know, when the book came out, I mean, and you know, still, I hear a lot from uh, white men, cis white men who have read the book and how much it's impacted how they think about masculinity. So I feel like I, I, that's a better form than, I mean, I, I'm not going to, um, you know, uh, uh, pat anybody on the back for, you know, saying something sexist. I'm just saying it's a, a better form, I think, is uh, to write something really powerful. 
and try to change yeah. the try try to change the larger story um and then individuals as seem like it's the right thing to do in the moment you know yeah I mean, I love that you get to live your double life, and I love that you you clearly love it, too. Um, <laughs> like, I, I think it's amazing. Um, and I, I found... I, I, I want to share the question that I found myself asking at the end of this book, which I don't think I... Ev- I, like, could not even imagine myself caring about the question. <laughs> um, but I finished it, and I was like, I want to know... There is so much about what it means to be a good man. Um, mm-hmm. And it just made me want to know, like, what is one thing that Carl thinks we can do to save masculinity? <laughs> I would have, like, I would have just been, like, unsavable, don't care. But I w- but you really, like, excavated something that you're like, oh, there is clearly something that is worthwhile there. So... Is there like a kernel? Is there something? Is there a way to save it? Is there a particular part of it that is worth saving to you? I mean, you know, oh my god, I, I, I feel like it. It is masculinity is right, so it like it's never gonna not be in some ways. And what I see, and I, you know, because I teach, I just see these really beautiful young people and the diversity of the way in which they see, I mean, the the students I teach are so far ahead of me in how they think about gender and how they think about masculinity. And so I think the, the kernel of possibility is that, you know, uh, if, if we can keep making space for all the ways the binary is um, uh, not, real uh, it, it, we then i think in that world masculinity can be a thing among other things right um yeah. and um and so you know and that's that's not going to happen in my lifetime probably related but but we uh, we try to chip away at it and i certainly see some of the young uh cis men in my class they give me um much hope uh, for that possibility so um so that's I think the most I that's what that that's the kernel I think. That's amazing. That that makes me very happy to hear. And I think you're right. When it stops being one thing that must be replicated by everyone, yeah. and it becomes, um, you know, as nuanced as as men are, um, yes. And, yes. and should allow themselves to be. Yeah. It made me think about a time in my life where I put a lot of effort into expanding what masculinity could be to include whoever the fuck I was. And I, mm-hmm. I, I gave up at that point because I found it to be um, inflexible. Yeah. Yep. And I, and I hope, I hope the flexibility um, is part of what saves it. Um, I love that. Thank yeah. you. Um, could I, could I give you a tarot reading? Yeah, please do. Yes. <laughs> My first um, one as I was yes, tweeting out. I, yes, yes. <laughs> I love I love that it's your first one. Um oh, that makes yes, me yes. really really excited. Yeah, I'm um so I'm going to give you like a little bit of info just to orient you. Okay. So what I'm going to do, this is our special tea cakes and tarot tarot reading. We pull one card from the major arcana. Tarot decks normally have 78 cards. Mm-hmm. 22 of them are called the major arcana and they kind of represent a circle of life, uh, a cycle that we're constantly going around and around and around. So when you do a bigger tarot reading, when one of the cards from the major arcana shows up, those cards are kind of like 
pay attention to me. This is the bigger, this is a big moment, basically. So we're going to pull one of those cards that speaks to, you know, cyclical journey of life. And then I'm going to pull one of Shakespeare's sonnets. And that's what we do. All right. So... I've been um, shuffling these cards a little bit, um, but I'm going to keep shuffling the tarot cards and I'm going to ask if there's anything that you feel like you need greater clarity um, or perspective on. Um, It could be a specific question or any theme or topic. You know, I wonder, the the, the question of probably a lot of artists right now whose careers have uh, sort of... um, disappeared. Uh, I'm of those uh, artists. And so I think one of the things, you know, I'm really thinking about is how to think about being an artist in a world that is so incredibly broken and going to be grieving for a really long time. And uh, Mm. what is, uh, what is mine to do and not to do? I think, I don't know if that's too big a question, Mm. but um, no, there's no question too big or too small. Um, that's, uh, that's amazing. Um, yeah. And if I correct me if I'm wrong, but there's talks about like, what would the stage version of becoming a man be right? There is a, st- I've adapted it. Um, it, it uh, yes. Uh, 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 ART and, um, the public theater, uh, have, uh, you know, committed to, uh, producing it, although it, that all happened. And then, uh, three minutes later, uh, there was a, a pandemic. So, yeah. uh, you know, uh, we, we will, we will see when it emerges, but it, it's, uh, uh, I think it's, uh, going to happen eventually. So that's amazing. All right. Well, I will be saying my, casting my spells for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Pick a card for that. Will you uh, just give me a, give me a date? <laughs> so, um, I'm going to be sort of just cutting this deck on screen so you can see it. And let me know when you want me to stop, and then the top card will be your card. All right, go ahead. Okay. Yep. So thinking about what a place is and is not at this time of grief and artists wanting to get back to creating. (laughs) Okay, so um, I know this will mean uh, some things to some people, and it is yet to mean something to you, but I've drawn the hanged man. Um, so let me show you what that looks like. Oh, okay. Um, I'm going to explain a little bit about what this card means and then pull the sonnet. Um, but the hanged man is literally just like hanging by his foot there. (laughs) It is like, so it's just uncomfortable. Um, but you like kind of just have to surrender to it. Oh my God. This is the waiting game. It's like flipping your perspective upside down, accepting the circumstances for what they are, and just like, you gotta let go. <laughs> that. Which, All right. If that, doesn't, if that doesn't answer that, I don't know what to do. I'm into tarot so, readings I mean, now. I'm, that's, that's great. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm interested um, to see what the. Um, the intersection of the sonnet will be because um, the card, you know, a reading is always about the conversation um, that is that comes up between cards. Um, but same thing's gonna happen. I'm gonna be cutting this deck, and you let me know. Okay. Uh, uh, right now, it's good. All okay, right. perfect. Hmm. Okay, this is sonnet um, 71. No longer mourn for me when I am dead, then you shall hear the surly, sullen bell give warning to the world that I am fled from this vile world with vilest worms to dwell. Nay, if you read this line, remember not the hand that writ it, for I love you so, that I and your sweet thoughts would be forgot if thinking on me then should make you woe. 
Oh, if I say you look upon this verse, when I perhaps compounded am with clay, do not so much as my poor name rehearse, but let your love even with my life decay. Lest the wise world should look into your moan and mock you with me after I am gone. Wow. Okay, so this is big. <laughs> this is the poet like anticipating, <laughs> you know, really big. his, it's, it's sorrowful. He's, he's talking about his death. He's anticipating mm-hmm. a time where he's not there, but he is kind of saying like, please don't remember me as gone. Like, don't think of me in the past let me sort of exist in the now. Mm-hmm. You know, those are wordy. Um, so I'm going to, I normally read it again just so we can mm-hmm. um, think about that. But I want to hear if anything that like pops out at you specifically from this, and I'm going to let you look at this card while I read it. Uh, yeah, I think there's a few things that pop out. <laughs> you know, my, my um, uh, wife uh, just uh, published a piece uh, in uh, Guernica magazine that uh, is kind of her experience of the transition. It's a beautiful essay. And mm. losing the person uh, that I was was like a death to her. Yeah. And I had spent so much time telling her not to mourn that because I was still mm. here. So th- that resonates uh, for me. And then... I think the other thing that resonates is the death that of, of this last year, um, which is, you know, both literal and then it's also so metaphorical for uh, so many of our spirits and energies. And so um, and that there we are hanging uh, kind of by a thread. But um, but, you know, uh, we're going to go on in some capacity. So I guess that's what I'm hearing from it. So. Yeah, that's amazing. Um Yes, I'm going to read it one more time, and then I have a couple thoughts I want to share with you. Yeah, great, please, yeah. No longer mourn for me when I am dead, then you shall hear the surly, sullen bell give warning to the world that I am fled from this vile world with vilest worms to dwell. Nay, if you read this line, remember not the hand that writ it, for I love you so that I in your sweet thoughts would be forgot if thinking on me then should make you woe. Oh, if I say you look upon this verse when I perhaps compounded am with clay, do not so much as my poor name rehearse, but let your love, even with my life, decay. Lest the wise world should look into your moan and mock you with me after I am gone. This is so fascinating to me, um, especially with the question that you asked about... um, you know, what's our place, what's not our place, and um, how we can... Our spirits are so generative. They're so creative. Like, I'm sitting in my apartment being like, what can I create when I'm not allowed to, you know, leave? Um, But surrender is active. It is not an inactive, Mm -hmm. passive thing. Um, And I know that you spent, you know, the last few years going through a lot of, like, big muscular changes and I know that you and the people around you have been you know maybe mourning a bit um but I love thinking of you as this uh poet asking the people around you not to you know the poet's being kind of cheeky being like you're silly if you're like caring about um you know, I'll, I'll make fun of you if you're just bemoaning me when I'm when I'm dead and gone but I really feel like it's a reminder to like live in the now of the moment, um, which you have fought really, really hard for. And, you know, you've created 
a self that was maybe latent but um, not fully realized for a long time. Um, and so I think um, I'm really interested in self-growth coming from, you know, letting it go, the surrender, being allowed to be uncomfortable, and just not spending too much time bemoaning what we don't have anymore. Because it's gone. Yeah. yeah. It's a beautiful reading of it. Thank yes. you. You're, you're, you, uh, you have a gift for this. It's very good. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Carl. Um, that's, that's it. That's our time already. And um, I am really, really grateful um, that you shared this time with me. This was our first ever conversation, and I hope it won't be the last. And um, thank you. Thank you again. Oh, thank you so much, Will. It was such a pleasure, and I'm so glad uh, we got to connect. And no, it will not be the last time. And uh, I'm going to tune in to one of the next one of these. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Yes, folks, I admit it, and you heard it here first. I, Will Wilhelm, in a public forum, asked and considered the saving of masculinity. But more on that later. First off, because I am looking back by the time this is released, two years since that conversation happened, and the feeling of the hanged man was so prevalent to all of us, we were just sitting in a time of waiting and what felt like inactivity. But there was a lot of growth happening in that moment, or there was supposed to be. There was a lot of reflection, there was a lot of conversation, there was a lot of talk about building back better, and there was a lot of talk about holding ourselves more accountable. I'm very curious to not let all of that energy pass us by and question, are we accomplishing the things we set out to do? Are we striving for those still? Or have we fallen in some ways into the path of least resistance? The imagery that was really evocative for me from that interview was the examining of the innards. And P. Carl talked about angels in America, very related to that hanged man idea of looking at what is inside us and then being tasked with stuffing it back, that has been very much what these last 18 or so months of re-entering our industry and going and doing regional gigs again has felt like to me. I ripped myself apart, and I know that I'm not alone, and then was tasked with... Being able to collaborate and being able to be around people and perform in public and have a heightened awareness of myself that I was not necessarily asking myself for before. Unfortunately, I feel the sense of HowlRound and the meaning of HowlRound, as P. Carl explained it, screaming into the feedback loop. I feel that even more intensely now than I ever did before because I think it was achievable for a lot of institutions and powers that be and leaders to make statements and set intentions. And it's really disheartening to see how those fall apart when a budget becomes tight or we get close to the deadline. I think we've seen a lot of performative allyship or performative representation where the seasons we program are more diverse, perhaps. But I've been hearing a lot of horror stories from the artists working in those institutions trying to advocate for themselves. It seems like the energy in a lot of places has been, we want to extend this invitation to you into our home. Then, when the people invited in are like, cool, thanks, I'm here and it seems you haven't set me up for success in any way. 
there are none of the things that I need to thrive or feel supported here. That has to be part of the invitation as well. And then all hell breaks loose and the balls get dropped and it's really disappointing. And I've been hearing different iterations of that same story from many artists in my community and many friends. So if that's you, you're definitely not alone. Not sure that that's comforting or discomforting, honestly. I'm picking up on a piece of wisdom that P. Carl offered, and that was his reason for making HowlRound in the first place was in direct response to the exclusivity of theater and the way theater and the arts were being made and to create a more community-based, all-access platform for ideas to be exchanged. So definitely want to encourage that energy wherever we can find it. On masculinity, lol, obviously I have my own traumatic or tortured or painful uh, relationship with masculinity from my childhood and my upbringing and it was really healing for my inner child and I hope maybe for P. Carl's as well to arrive at a conversation where we could say what does masculinity offer our world that we want to cherish that we want to lift up that we want to applaud I was so glad that their answer was to pull it apart to make it malleable to make it stretch to make one's experience of it diverse and ever-changing. Ultimately, I felt like P. Carl was advocating for a relationship with masculinity that is specific to each man or each human with a relationship to their masculinity. It's so often an edict that has been handed down in a very specific way, and Carl's journey has been learning to define that for himself. What I remember so much about that book was P. Carl's very specific and nuanced relationship to the idea of masculinity because he came into it publicly in middle age. And there's a sense of personhood and intentionality with his relationship to masculinity and my relationship to masculinity, and for many people who identify as men, is somewhat handed to us before we really have many notions of what we choose to accept or not accept. So if that piques any of your interest, Go buy that damn book. It's really good. And also, Carl mentioned that it might be being adapted for the stage. And all I'm saying is that I've heard some rumors about that project. It's not my hot goss to share, but all I'll say is that I'm keeping my ear to the ground and keeping an eye out because I would love to see that play. Thank you so much to our incredible Tea Cakes and Tarot team. They are my co-creator, Aaron Murray, our sound engineer, Nigel Shields, our graphic designer, Ray Morgan, and we are produced by the Island Shakespeare Festival. Extra special thanks go to our Season 2 sponsors, Whidbey Telecom, Island Ductless Heat Pumps, Goose Community Grocer, and Goosefoot Community Fund. Oh, and one more thing. The time has come, hennies. If you will be in the Chicago area from May 4th to June 3rd, please allow me to personally invite you to the world premiere of Gender Play or What You Will, presented by About Face Theater at the Den Theater in Wicker Park. Gender Play is a magical solo show that is one part party, one part seance, and one part fever dream that invites both audience and actor, hint, that is me, on a journey of self-discovery and queer possibility through the works of William Shakespeare. Tickets are available at aboutfacetheater.com. That's theater with an R-E, of course. We'd love to see you there. As is customary, I'll be leaving you with another reading of that sonnet. And it was Sonnet 
71. No longer mourn for me when I am dead, then you shall hear the surly, sullen bell give warning to the world that I am fled from this vile world with vilest worms to dwell. Nay, if you read this line, remember not the hand that writ it, for I love you so that I in your sweet thoughts would be forgot if thinking on me then should make you woe. Oh, if I say you look upon this verse when I perhaps compounded am with clay, do not so much as my poor name rehearse, but let your love even with my life decay, lest the wise world should look into your moan and mock you with me after I am gone. Hey pals, it's been a treat to see you in person. I'm so grateful to return to this podcast space with you. And it's going to be fun taking a look back at these interviews and asking ourselves how far we've come. But no matter what, keep on shining. <laughs>